Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with the great Peter Linneman today, Dr. Peter Linneman. And you're going to learn a lot today about what's going on in the current economic environment and what to anticipate as things continue to evolve as whether it's the Delta variant, whether it's economic stimulus, whether it's monetary policy, whether it's interest rates, cap rates, you know, all of these different things, behavior from a macroeconomic, you know, standpoint, as well as what's happening on the ground in your market, um, within your investing strategy today is extremely valuable. You're going to learn so much. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. Of course, today you're going to expand your mind and you're going to learn so much more about how the economic circumstances currently, as well as historically impact your investment strategy and impact your life because wow, that's so important. Of course, this is also a way that you can develop yourself as an individual. There's so much value in this conversation. If you want to be a high-performing real estate investor, today's show is for you. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts such as top economists in the world to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar. And as we raise this bar, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for listening. If you're enjoying Elevate Podcasts, uh, the fee is really just to pay it forward. Share this with a friend. Share this with your spouse. Share this with a family member. Share this with a, with a business associate, a partner, an employee. Share this with someone that you know and you want to add value to their life. That's the fee. Everything else, it is 100% free. And so we're here to add massive value to you. I'm here to add massive value to you. I want to thank you for being here. I want to encourage you, if you have not done so already, please, please, please go back and give us a rating, a review, subscribe and follow Elevate Podcasts on whatever podcast platform that you like to listen or watch the podcast because we're everywhere. And the only way that we can continue to attract amazing guests like Peter Lineman and all the other amazing people that we've had and and we have on the docket for Elevate Podcast. It is, you know, really something that helps us in a big way is if you subscribe, rate and review. So please do that if you have just a moment. I would be incredibly grateful. And by the way, I read every single review. So thank you so much for all that. And with all that said, I want to dive in. I want to introduce you to Peter Lineman. For over 40 years, Dr. Peter Lineman's unique blend of scholarly rigor and practical business insight has won him accolades from around the world. Let me just tell you, I got to expand my, my window here, including, including PREA's prestigious Grosskamp Award for Real Estate Research, Wharton's Zell Lurie Real Estate Center's Lifetime Achievement Award, Realty Stock Magazine Special Achievement Award, being named one of the top 25 most influential people in real estate by Realtor Magazine, and inclusion in the New York Observer's 100 Most Powerful People in New York Real Estate. 
After receiving both his master's and doctorate in economics under the tutelage of Nobel Prize winners Milton Friedman, Gary Becker, George Stigler, Ted Schultz, and Jim Heckman, Peter had a distinguished academic career at both the University of Chicago and the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. For 35 years, he was a leading member of Wharton's faculty, serving as the Albert Sussman uh, professor of real estate finance and public policy, as well as the founding chairman of the real estate department and director of the prestigious Zell Lurie Real Estate Center. During this time, he was a co-editor of the Wharton Real Estate Review. In addition, he published over 100 scholarly articles for editions of the acclaimed book, Real Estate Finance and Investments, Risks and Opportunities, and the widely read Linneman uh, letter quarterly report. And of course, you'll want to see the links in the show notes for both his book, Real Estate Finance and Investments, Risks and Opportunities, as well as subscribing to the Lineman Letter Quarterly Report, it, which is highly, highly recommended. Peter's long and ongoing business career is highlighted by his roles as founding principal of Lineman Associates, a leading real estate advisory firm, CEO of American Land Fund, and CEO of KL Realty. For more than 35 years, he has advised leading corporations and served on over 20 public and private boards, including serving as a chairman of the Rockefeller Center Properties, which is phenomenal. How iconic is that? And of course, you'll hear a little bit more about his experience with the Rockefeller family, as well as that property and so forth, where he led the successful restructuring and sale of Rockefeller Center in the mid-1990s. Although retired from Wharton's faculty, Dr. Linneman continues his con commitment to education through his Sam Elimu Educational Charity for Orphans and Children of Extreme Poverty in rural Ken Kenya. He has been married for over 40 years and is an exercise enthusiast. You'll hear, hear a little bit more about that as well. And this is a highly dynamic and thoughtful, not only economist, but professional and learner and you know someone who's committed to longevity as well you're going to hear a lot about his now his future work and things that he's got in the hopper as well so i want to invite you to be inspired and to learn from the great dr peter linneman peter linneman welcome to elevate how are you i'm terrific it's a lovely hot humid day here in philadelphia i'm about um, a block and a half from independence hall where i live and the garden you see behind me I'm not in at this moment, but it's about a block away, part of Independence Park. So nice background. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we're, we're going to have an awesome conversation today. I know we're going to learn so much today. So I'm really grateful in advance for this conversation. But Peter, for people who don't know you and, and the way that I like to introduce my guests uh, to my audience is really to have them describe themselves in the way that the people that know them best would describe them. So Peter, how would the people who have known you longest know your deepest and darkest secrets? They know every corner and crevice of your mind. What would they say about you, Peter? So they would probably say pretty good economist, old, <laughs> old school, um, fair, non-political, uh, even though a lot of the topics I speak about are politicized. I'm not political, never really have been political. Um, and I think that they would say analytic and collects facts and presents his views as clearly as he can, understanding that he could well be wrong. But if he expresses why he believes he's right, you have a chance to better understand your own thinking. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. And tell me a little bit about your upbringing, your backstory. I mean, where, where'd you come from and what was life like growing up, Peter? I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood in a blue collar city in um, Ohio, a place called Lima, Ohio. It was an industrial, it would now be called Rust Belt, but when I was there, it wasn't rusty as I grew up. And um, I, uh, my mother, my mother worked kind of part time and my father um, was a laborer. And uh, in fact, I, the, it, I, he worked at Standard Oil of Ohio, which the Rockefellers were, that was John David Rockefeller's, you know, one of his babies. I subsequently became chairman of Rockefeller Center in the mid early 90s. And I was talking to David Rockefeller, who I got to know a little through that process. The Linemans didn't exactly socialize with the Rockefellers. And, and I said, you know, David, who was a wonderful man, I said, David, we have um, just three things in common. One, we both have a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Uh, granted, your grandfather founded it, but nonetheless, um, I said that um, we've both been chairman of Rockefeller Center at different points in history. Um, granted, you were a major shareholder and I own some shares. And the third is both of our fathers worked for Standard Oil of Ohio. Granted, mine was a laborer and yours was the primary shareholder and chairman, but <laughs> And David, who was a very sweet man, said, yes, it is amazing how the world works. And it does kind of capture. I, I have four siblings. One is dead. Only one went to university. Doug, he works with me. Um, uh, I went to University of Chicago, studied under Milton Friedman and other Nobel Prize winners, um, became an economist, I joined the Wharton School's faculty in 1979, and in 1979, I started Linum & Associates, which is a boutique consulting and investment firm that evolved to have its specialty primarily in real estate, real estate economics, economic issues. We have some non-real estate clients over the years. Um, I retired from teaching at Wharton about 10 years ago. Um, some of the students think I stopped teaching many years before that. I, you would have a debate about that. Uh, no, and, um, and what I have is uh, I've been on about 20 corporate boards over the years. I'm on four public company boards now, some private advisory situations. Uh, we published Lineman Letter quarterly for 20 years, which is read widely in the industry. And we have a book called Real Estate Finance and Investments, which I think is in the fifth edition, which is widely used both by universities and um, and companies like Goldman Sachs and Blackstone. If you got hired as a new hire, you'll have that book on your desk saying, learn it, which is quite lovely. And we, I've been blessed to be around some wonderful and amazing people, including my wife of 48 years and... Uh, that's my life. We have no children, although we have a lot of children in our lives. That's beautiful. And it really illustrates, obviously, a, a life of, 
of so much um, value that you've brought in so many different capacities. So, you know, big shout out to you in terms of how you continue to add value to other people, not only from a high level, uh, being an economist, but obviously as a professor, as a consultant and so forth. And, and also just as a person, you know, who's leading other people in so many different degrees. And so I think it's really fascinating. So was the time frame that economics and real estate became in your purview, was that in university or was that prior to, when did you, when oh, did that become? University. I mean, okay. blue collar kids don't learn about economics, you right. know, and I learned about economics. I had a paper route that I bought when I was 12 that had 40 customers and, uh, and I grew it to 260 customers. So I learned about hustling and making money and, and cash flow as opposed to earnings and, uh, and so forth. And, and, you know, I put myself actually through high school and, and, and through university with the help of people and some scholarships. And, um, um, and then when I was in university, I met an extraordinary woman who's in 1969, I met her and she was my instructor. She's an extraordinary person. She was the only woman in her class, MBA class in 1946 at Northwestern University. And she went on to uh, become a professor and a business person and a provost and uh, served on five Fortune 500 boards and has been my dear friend since 1969. And she was an economist and kind of turned me on to it. And I talked to her at least every week and we've traveled the world over the years. And at 99, she's still going pretty well. And uh, shout out to Dr. Lucille Ford, you know, and, and changed my life. And she identified I had some ability in economics and went to University of Chicago. And, and that was an amazing time there. I had three Nobel Prize winners on my thesis committee and two others that I worked pretty closely with and um, was uh, learned a lot and really got excited about economics. And then my life has been a combination of teaching it and trying to practice variations of it over all these years. Yeah. And I want to fast forward to what's going on today and get your insights on today. But before I do that, tell me, what was it like studying under Milton Friedman? Uh, he was, if, if you real, I'll say this, if you want to know, watch his YouTubes. I mean, he's dead for about, I think, eight years now. Um, his YouTubes capture it pretty well in that he was kind and he was very fast intellectually, very smart, very articulate. And, um, and, and he opened your eyes to the practicalities of economics as well as the technicalities. So I was a young, when I finished my PhD, Milton had moved to the Hoover Institution at Stanford by then. And I was hired by the University of Chicago as a young faculty member. So in probably 1978, I'm a newly minted PhD. I'm statistic and teched up and got all this and I can do all the formulas endless, right? And Milton, who at that time was probably 69 or 68, came and I had lunch with him and two other gentlemen, Gary Becker and and George Stigler, both who win Nobel Prizes, who were very good to me. We're having lunch and Milton says, so Peter, I suppose you think you're an economist now because he hadn't seen me since I had been finished my PhD and joined, it was some months. And I 
knew where this was possibly going, so I'd stay quiet. And he says, so you know all about economics? And I stayed quiet. Remember, I was their student, you know? So, <laughs> and I kind of said, mm. and he said, uh, what's the prime rate? I, I don't, you'll never forget this, right? What was, what's the prime rate? And I said, well, the prime rate is the rate that banks charge <clears throat> their best customers. He said, no, what is it today? I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't have gotten within 20%. You know, I don't, you know, I didn't know if it was 80% or 1%. I had no idea. You knew the concept. And, and he asked it very kindly. And, and then he asked nine other things like that, practical things. How, how many people are employed in the United States? Um, uh, how big is GDP? You know, and I had no clue. Now, remember, I had just finished pretty effectively they, they felt good enough about me to hire me, you know? And there was one of the nine, one of the 10 I knew, do, knew, did know the answer to, but I, it, was, it was fluke that I happened to know. And Milton said something that was very important, which was, and he said it nicely, when you know the answer to those 10 questions and 10 other questions like that, that an intelligent person like you, Tyler, would ask, you. no, but that an intelligent person who's curious about what you know, when you can answer 10 questions like that and another 10 and another 10, then you're an economist. Made a deep impression on me that it's not enough to know formulas and so forth. You've got to actually embed that and weave and, and so forth. So what was he like? He was kind and demanding at the same time. And he demanded that you actually think things through. But I encourage anybody who's never seen him to go on YouTube. There's a lot of his talks and they're quite amazing. Yeah. And that's, that just strikes me as the perfect type of teacher and mentor someone who's going to challenge you in that way. And something that's lasted with you for so long, that's such a beautiful, um, you know, reminisce, you know, reminiscing experience that you just shared with us. I almost felt like I was there with you in that, that moment. And thinking about as we have fast forward and as you've weaved that understanding, right. As you've built this lattice work of understanding as an economist, you've continued to stack on that year after year and in continually changing environment, continually evolving set of circumstances circumstances. I want to get your sense of what's happening today. And I think it's really important because people that are high-performing real estate investors or people who want to be high-performing real estate investors have to understand the set of circumstances which they find, you know, the game that they're playing, right? And so I think it's important that we have this conversation. So where would you like to start, Peter? I mean, what's your what's your sense of what's going on right now in the in the macroeconomic environment? I know it's a global economy, but where would you like to start, Peter? All right. So let me give a couple of facts, and at least they set a base for our discussion. One is that real GDP, adjusted for inflation GDP, today, literally today as we sit here, is basically the same as it was uh, at the end of February 2020. So that's good news because it fell dramatically, as we know, especially during the shutdown it came back last summer and then it's been fluttering like a butterfly forward, slowed down by some things, sped up by others, slowed down. And by the way, what I call the butterfly recovery has been fluttering slower 
in the last couple of months, last few weeks because of Delta, right? And the uncertainties. And that's why I call it a butterfly. You know, people were saying swoosh and V and this and that. No, the first part was a V and then it became a butterfly because it's what you allow yourself to do. Do you feel comfortable going to the football game? Do you feel comfortable dining in a restaurant? Will they let you go to a football game? Will they let you dine in a restaurant? And so the combination of what we're allowed to do and what we feel comfortable to do, and not everybody feels equally comfortable because not everybody is equally exposed and vulnerable, children different than elderly or vaccinated and so forth. So the butterfly, and I say butterfly because think how a butterfly moves. Maybe it moves forward, but it stops, it goes left, it goes right, it can go backwards, it goes up, goes down. It will go forward. So I think we're in a butterfly. So GDP is basically the same as it was. That's the good news. Bad news is that it should be about 4% higher if we'd have never had the pandemic and shutdown. And all that is is a year and a half growth at 2.5% a year not rocket science, right? There's nothing fancy econometrics in what I'm saying, right? It's just, gee, if things had gone on at two and a half percent a year, 18 months later, we'd have been about 4% ahead. So the good news is we're caught up. The bad news is we're about 4% behind where we could be, okay? Now, that's also good news in that it says there's runway, right? There's runway. There's capability to, to, to do that 4%. Then let's go to the labor market. We have about, and I'm rounding, just under 6 million fewer workers than we did at the end of February 2020, okay? And that's when, you know, the pandemic starts early March. So if you think about it, the, that has good news and bad news. Let's take the bad news. The 6 million understates how far behind we are because in a year and a half of growth, if we'd have had normal growth during that year and a half, we'd have added 2 million, 3 million people. So we're actually behind more like 8 to 9 million, okay? That's good news. And again, it's capacity and runway that you don't feel like you're flat out, right? That's good. Why is it that GDP is back and employment is not back? Well, employment always lags, okay? Employment always lags. For the simple reason that companies always want to make sure things have really recovered before they bring on more bodies, and you get a little more juice out of your workers, can't do that forever, right? You can't do it forever, but before I go hire a bunch of people, let's make sure we're keeping the ones we've got engaged. That's always the case. That said, we probably are behind three to four million people in that regard. That is, we should have three to four million more should have been hired by now. Why weren't they? Because since March until September 6th, a little earlier in a few states, we paid about half of the labor force more not to work than to work if they were on unemployment. So if your kid came out of high school, they weren't on unemployment. They had to go get a job. They weren't making more unemployed than employed. And that's why the teenage unemployment rate is at an all-time low, because there's a lot of jobs out there. We have record high job opportunities. And the teens are taking them because the 
Adults aren't so much. To show what it means, um, look, economics isn't perfect, but it kind of works. If I pay you more not to work than to work, I know some people are going to say, why the hell am I working? Not everybody, but some, right? And and break-even is around, was, it expired September 6th, was around $25 an hour. Now you have to pause. $25 an hour, 2,000 hours a year is 50,000. That's not bad. So it basically said if you were making 50,000 or less a year, you were better off if you were on unemployment to stay there than to go get a job, okay? Economically better off. And it was worse than that because imagine you were making $26 an hour. Well, you're really only making a dollar an hour. Right. Because you can get 25 doing nothing. Right? Who works for a dollar an hour? Well, some <laughs> people do, but not a lot. So the impact was far greater than just people making 50000 It also affected people who were 60000 seven because they go, well, what's the point at the margin? Now, that's gone. And I think as people realize, oh, my unemployment check is $300 a week less, $300 a week. That's a lot. As they realize, I don't think they're following headlines. I think they're going to realize, sweetheart, we don't have as much money. Just And that didn't happen on the 7th of September. That's kind of happening today. It's going to happen next week. It's going to happen the week after that. It's going to happen the week after that. People are going to say, oh, shucks, I got to go get a job. And you're going to see a lot of jobs happening, like three to four million pretty quickly, um, because people want to buy clothes. They want to eat. They want to go on holiday. Um, So I think you'll see this. By the way, it was well-intended, the top up, the $300. Nobody was trying to do crazy stuff, but crazy stuff sometimes happens. Right. And so where's the economy fluttering around? Delta's creating a lot of uncertainty. A year ago, a little over a year ago, I said the best barometer of the economy to watch. So this would have been about June, I said this last year. Watch the stadiums. And when you see the stadiums full, you'll know the economy is kind of back. That doesn't mean every element of the economy. And if you think about it, that turned out to be a pretty accurate barometer. Not perfect, pretty accurate, right? And by the way, I don't know what you watched over the weekend, but I watched college on Saturday and 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 um, they were pretty full. Pros on Sunday, and they were all full. Mm-hmm. Not all full, but you, you you know normal. And by the way, if you go back, follow the basketball season, and you know last basketball season, it wasn't until almost playoff time. And they started allowing 1,000 people and then 4,000 people. And then by the playoffs, most of the cities were allowing pretty much a full stadium except right behind the players, right? And I think this has been a pretty accurate barometer for a real person, a normal person. I'll watch the data. You watch the stadiums kind of stuff, <laughs> you know? Um, is not a bad indicator. And by the way, if you start seeing Delta really take off, you know what you're going to see in the stadiums? Fewer people. I mean, if, if you start saying everybody who was at the game this past weekend is in the hospital two weeks from now, you're going to see fewer people in the stadiums. No doubt. I'm not right. saying that will happen. I'm saying if, right? 
So we still have a lot of exposure to Delta, particularly in travel and tourism. Anything relating to international is dicey, right? Because there's an example. Uh, we have light children. They're light daughters to us who live in Germany. They can't come visit us because they're not allowed in even if they're vaccinated, right? So there's still a lot of restrictions. That's a short answer. By the way, just give you an idea. That's a short answer for me. <laughs> So there's, there's a butterfly um, sort of pattern at play here, and it's continually changing and evolving. Is there any sort of ability to project what may occur over the next six months, 12 months, maybe even two to three years? Is there any ability from your side of things at this continually fluid environment? If, okay, so let me give you the three-party answer. One, I think starting the last quarter of this year, for the reasons I just said about the people are going to come back to work, when they come back to work, they're going to produce. The fact that they're producing means there's more productivity in the economy that propels the economy forward. And uh, we'll move forward quite well. And that will continue into 2022. I expect 2022 to be a quite strong year. Um, and by the way, in spite of what Washington does, I'm, I'm 70 years old. And I've um, two insights on Washington. They always are stupid, um, <laughs> on at least on economic policies. And that's not Democrats and that's not, it's just the nature of it, right? They're politicians, not economists. Their job is not to maximize the economy. Their job is to maximize their chances of getting reelected. And, and that's why they're not stupid, but the economic policies are designed for them to get reelected much more than drive the economy. Okay, so That's a good point. and so uh, will Washington do stupid things this year and next year and three years from now, nine years? Of course, they've always done stupid things, but we do okay. We kind of grow, and maybe we grow a little faster if they do a little less stupid, and maybe we grow a little slower if they do particularly stupid. But we we do okay. So I expect to see pretty good, particularly as this labor and this, this we have potential, you know, we're 4% short, 9 million jobs short. I see a lot of positive there. Second part of the answer is, what if Delta turns out to be, by standards of future mutations, what if Delta turned out to be really mild? What if Delta turns out that it was really, as these things go, not very contagious, even though it's much more contagious than the predecessors. And what if it turns out it's not terribly virulent compared to what's yet to come? So if I told you, and I have things mutate, who knows how they mutate? Suppose I told you the next mutation of note is five times more virulent and five times more contagious. What do you think happens to the economy? Slows. That can be right? good, yeah. Now, third part of the answer is here's the good news. The mRNA versions, the Moderna and Pfizer's and maybe others to come, the mRNA versions are, quote, easily tweakable. And what people don't understand about the mRNA, fortunately, I'd been reading about mRNA unrelated prior to the pandemic for a book I was working on. Um, the, I'm going to give you roughly the timeline. Don't hold me to it precisely. We find out in the Western world, uh, that there is this novel virus, something like January 15th of 2020. 
Uh, these are documentable dates, so I'm just doing them off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. We find out something like January 15. By like January 18, we have the genome map. And by January 23rd, um, Pfizer, Biogen, and Moderna basically have the vaccine that you got shot with, okay? Now, you say, well, if they had it the 23rd of January, why did it take me until a year later because they had to get it tested. They had to, they had theory it was right, but they had to prove it was right. They had to go through, they had to get approvals. Why is that heartening? I mean, we're talking like a week and a half or a week from when we found out to when they had it via the mRNA, which is genetic um, modeling. It says, let's suppose the next mutation is worse. Give them a few months and we'll have something. May not be perfect, but we'll have something. So that's heartening for me. So I think the next three years look good, but I'm not an idiot that things could be nasty medically. But I mean, a meteor could also hit us. (laughs) I'm not going to predict that. I mean, things happen. I'll tell you one thing I've learned in my 70 years is that once in a lifetime things happen about every eight years. It's not the same once in a lifetime. But there's once in a lifetime. Now, I'm just, I'll just do real quick. I mean, 9-11, 20 years ago, like seven or eight years later is the financial crisis. You know, sort of uh, nine years later after that or 10 years later after that is COVID. They're very different once in a lifetime things. But And I go through my life. You know, they put up the Berlin Wall, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thank God they're once in a lifetime, but boy, they sure shook things up. So we forget that once in a lifetime things happen all the time. And the amazing thing is we're still kind of surprised when they happen. (laughs) We're not surprised at the specifics. We're surprised it happens, right? And so uh, be prepared. Be prepared for once for the be prepared for the next once in a lifetime thing. I think that's a phenomenal reminder. And the reason why is because leading up to COVID, we were always thinking, well, when's the next financial crisis? When's the next financial crisis? That's what everyone's talking about. And leading up to 2008, 2009, everybody's thinking, when's the next terrorist attack? When's the next terrorist attack and all these things. And so being ready and adaptable for change, I think is obviously, you know, the underlying dimension in terms of how to succeed in an ever changing environment where once in a lifetime things can happen every eight years. But thinking about the economic cycle, I'm actually curious your thoughts on this, because when I think about the economic cycle, typically, if you read a textbook, it's every 10 years, you're going through a full cycle, right? Where are we right now in this current cycle? Okay, so this downturn had nothing to do with a normal economic cycle. No, this had to do with right or wrong, we shut the economy down, right? And we had a, a very bad disease, floating around, those two things, okay? Um, That's not normal, right? Normal is we got excessive, we overbuilt housing, we sold too many cars, we overlevered. You know, there was always those type of things. This had nothing to do with that, nothing. The good news, however, is, and you're right, by the way, if you go back, if we'd have done this February 2020, the conversation had been, when's the next, well, are we on the brink? Are we on right. the brink? Right, right, okay. And that had been the conversation for like three years, right? Mm-hmm. Since like 2017, that exactly. had been the conversation, right? 
The good news is that basically the excesses that create a typical cycle got eliminated, coincidentally got eliminated by the downturn, namely weak companies, the company that was on the brink of going under, the company that had borrowed too much. A lot of that got flushed unintentionally by this downturn. In other words, it didn't cause it, but it did flush it, right? It cleaned a lot of that out. As a result, we got something like a clean template going forward. So we did get a kind of reset without having to directly deal with the normal financial issues. And the normal financial issues got dealt with, right or wrong, by the Fed giving the banking system staggering amounts of reserves saying, don't let people go bankrupt, don't let companies go bankrupt needlessly. Now, it's not to say no companies went bankrupt. No real, there were real estate properties taken, there were, but clearly the Fed said, we're going to give you banks unprecedented amount of capital. So don't say you had to foreclose on something because you didn't have enough capital. Use that capital to keep the system afloat and restrike them, so to speak. Give them. So I see on the other side of this, a lot of the things that we might have discussed in 2018, 2019, they're not fully dealt with. We're still humans, right? But to give you a good example, I have this fear and greed, you know, with investors. And when you get in trouble, is when greed dominates fear. There is no fear. And people believe trees grow to the sky and there's more money than brains, right? And it doesn't mean you're stupid. I could take the greatest investor in the world, but if I gave them 40 times as much money, they probably have more money than brains, right? It's just <laughs> mechanical. Okay. So, well, you know, people say, well, the stock market's way up. Yes, but so, is, so are cash holdings. Cash holdings are way, way up. You think the stock market's up? Cash holdings are up much greater percentage in the stock market. Now, what does that say? We're no longer in the panic, the fear of February last year, April last year, May of last year. But we're certainly not at rampant greed because if we were at rampant greed, we wouldn't have all that cash. And I'm willing to bet you and most of your listeners have record amounts of cash. And you don't hold record amounts of cash if greed has won the battle between fear. So we're somewhere in the middle. There's still a lot of distance for greed to run. I don't mean greed in a, greed in a negative sense. I'm just meaning in a, in, a, in a kind of psychological sense of where you're at. Um, so we have a lot of distance to run, I think, in a lot of ways. That cash is going to get put to use. Not all of it, but a lot of that cash is going to get put to use. A lot of the reserves that are in the banks are going to come out over the next few years, not necessarily next year. The next few years, and when it does, it's going to chase assets, and it's going to chase investments, and that's going to bid up values. It's going to, when fear further recedes, you're going to see higher prices, lower cap rates, higher multiples, higher gold price, you know, whatever. Um, so I see that there's more good out there in the next few years than bad. Um, things can always go wrong. And what could go wrong? We get another once in a lifetime event. I don't know what it is. 
Um, Washington could screw up more than normal, but that's unlikely. History basically says Washington screws up about the typical amount. So don't be surprised. I'm, I'm just constantly amazed people are surprised that government policies are not perfect economic maximizers. And you go, what movie have you been watching? Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital. And you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value-packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. And enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> well, in terms of you, you're talking about liquidity and th talking about stimulus, you know, obviously there's lagging indicators that you were just describing in terms of pricing, asset inflation, so forth. But what else are you seeing on the horizon? I mean, related to whether it's um, asset prices, uh, asset values, yield compression, tax policy, interest rates. I'm curious. I mean, what are you seeing on the horizon on all those factors? The number. I think the tax stuff, the, you're going to get, the Democrats are going to get some of what they want. They're not going to get all of what they want. You don't do with a 50-50 Senate all of what you want. Um, the capital gains tax will go up a little. The, you know, there'll be a reduction in the estate tax exemption. There'll be a little higher corporate tax. Those will all probably be a slight drag on the economy, but we've lived with all that before. The economy has done well with all that before. It's done poorly with all that before, right? So I, I, that's sort of what I see on the tax front. On the interest rate side, I think the Fed will do everything in their power, not just the Fed, by the way, central banks around the world will do everything in their power to keep interest rates low as long as they can. Um, one, because they believe low interest rates stimulate the economy. I'm not sure why they believe that. There's not really any evidence of that. But other than that, it's a nice classroom theory. But go find the evidence. You can't find it. But having said that, um, they will try to keep it down. And they will try to keep it down because they are not stupid. They do understand that if interest rates were to go up a lot, uh, there'd be a lot of disruption, not least with the federal budgets. And they're humans, and they can't isolate themselves from that. So I think interest rates stay down. And then on asset prices, uh, well, on rent and occupancy, I think the strong economy will make rent and occupancy fundamentals pretty good um, as we look forward. 
And then on the capital side, we have injected unbelievable amounts of money into the system. On the 1st of September 2008, from the beginning of the history of the United States to the 1st of September, we had created $800 billion of monetary base. 800, over the whole thing, 800. Um, and I'm going to do these numbers off the top of my head. At the end of QE3, QE1, QE2, QE3, I think it had gotten up to 3.2 trillion. Now think about that. In all of history, we had created 800 and now we have 3.2 trillion, okay? Then um, during the pandemic, during the sh shutdown and pandemic, I'm, again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but the image is right. I think it's up to 4.5. Now you mentioned Milton Friedman before, money has to go somewhere. Right. And I'm not saying all of it. So what did we see? From 2014 to 2000, just pre-pandemic 2020, right, we saw about a trillion and a half reduction in excess reserves of banks. And what did you see happen to stock multiples, private equity multiples, cap rates? Values got bid up. Why? Because money was chasing. It wasn't chasing ice cream bars. It was chasing the company that makes ice cream bars. Mm -hmm. It wasn't chasing Wonder Bread slices. It was chasing the company that makes Wonder Bread, right? And so what you had was not a lot of consumer price inflation, but a lot of asset price inflation because the modern banking system is set up much more to give money to asset buyers than it is to bread buyers. That's very different than in the 1970s. In the 1970s, it was a very localized, fragmented banking system set up to give money much more local. And today, it's set up even more so to give to asset buyers. And so I'm an asset buyer. I get a loan. I buy your asset. You're an asset buyer. You take that money. You get a loan. You buy another asset and goes. Doesn't mean you don't buy some bread, but Mostly you buy assets. And the analogy I use, remember Beavis and Butthead? Oh, yeah. yeah. Imagine that all the money that the Fed put in in QE1, QE2, QE3, and QE Infinity was not given to the big 10, 12 banks, but was given to Beavis and Butthead. What <laughs> would go up in price? Junk. ATDC shirts. Right. Weed. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, because that's what they expend it on, right? right? You'd want to see. So when you give money to the big 10, 12 banks, they're going to put it to work in what they do. And it's asset, much more asset focus. And that includes cars and houses, by the way. Assets include cars and houses. And so I think the future is lower cap rates rather than higher. Now, there'll be swings between fear and greed. Um, in that, that will disrupt it, as always curse, swings between fear and greed, but greed always returns, right? So the recession, so I think most real estate investors I know look at it and say, ah, seven years from now, the cap rate will be 50 basis points higher than what I buy it at. Well, they were wrong in 2015, they were wrong in 2016, they were wrong in 17, wrong in 18, wrong in 19, and they were wrong for a reason not because they were stupid. And the reason was that 
there's just massively more money chasing and it's got to find a home. And if I told you there's going to be two times as much money chasing real estate a year from now, what would happen to cap rates? They go way down. Values go way up. Got to find a home. Right. And you wouldn't say, ah, but you have to tell me what interest rates are. It's not about interest rates. So I've done some reasonably sophisticated research um, with Matt Mariva on my own, Linham Associates on cap rates. And we find it's not about interest rates. Cap rates are about flow funds. It's all about the weight of money. And I think we are on the brink over the next year of huge weight of money. And it's going to systematically reduce cap rates, I don't know, 10%. Will it reduce it for every property? No, some more, some less. And therefore, when people tell me that deals are priced to perfection right now, like in multifamily, I say, well, what kind of exit cap rate do you have? And they will 50 basis points higher than today's. I said, and then I tell them, well, imagine the cap rate doesn't rise because of the weight of money. Imagine the cap rates fall because of the weight of money. Is that deal underwritten to perfection? The answer is no. There's plenty of room. So I see yields get remain low. Yes, the Fed stops buying and that allows treasuries to go up a little, but they still stay low. Why? Because there's so much money that needs a home. <clears throat> And treasuries are a home people want to be in. And you say, yeah, but the interest rate is nothing. Yes, but a quarter of all the debt in the world carries a negative interest rate, right? So it's like, it's just the weight of money is so staggering that the Fed has put in um, that we get asset price inflation rather than consumer price inflation. So in the 70s, we got, and not just in the US, in a lot of places, the banking system generated consumer price inflation. But when the banking system is set to give money to asset buyers, you don't get much consumer price inflation, but you get a lot of asset price inflation. Peter, this is so insightful and, and everything is so interrelated and interconnected that it's important for us to continue to study and surround ourselves with people like you and, and really study your work. And, and so we'll obviously uh, share that here as we kind of conclude the episode here shortly. But before we move into what I call the rapid fire section of our podcast. I wanted to ask you about a couple different things related to a lot of what we've been talking about. One of which is single family housing. And then I want to talk a little bit about multifamily as well. But single family housing to me is very interesting. You think about, you know, the the weight of money that you were just describing and thinking about this housing market that is, you know, just gone beyond where it's ever been. Where do you see single family housing over the next five to 10 years in particular? Up for the reason we just described, um, the explosion in home ownership that occurred. Remember, in March was last year was bad for single family, really bad, right? Right. April was really bad. May was really, and then it started picking up, right? Why did it pick up? And that's because I did research in 1990 with Sue, Susan Wachter and. And it showed the obvious, which is the issue isn't the monthly payment. The monthly payment determines what you buy, right? It determines do you buy a new car, a fancy Mercedes, or a used Buick, right? Mm -hmm. The monthly determines what kind of home, what kind of residence, right? It doesn't determine if you own. What determines if you own? Do you have the money for a down payment? And if you don't have the money for a down payment, the fact that you have the monthly is irrelevant, right? If you don't have the down. So now think about what happened. And I missed this 
but I figured it out pretty quickly. Um, I figured people lose their jobs. Normally when they lose their jobs, savings go down. Well, what happened was the combination of government support, which was unprecedented, and you had nothing to spend your money on. Right. So you got a refund on your Eagles tickets. You got, you couldn't go to dinner. You didn't go to the movie. You, you didn't go on vacation. And the savings rate went from about 7%, 7 to like 32% overnight. Now think about somebody who had a hundred thousand income, family, household. They had 7%, so they had 7,000 a year they were saving, but 4,000 of that was their, for, their um, retirement account, right? That wasn't usable for a down payment. They had 3,000, so to have, three, to, to do um, uh, a $300,000 home, they had to save for 10 years. And they were somewhere between their first year and their last year of saving 3,000 a year. Now imagine a household saving 30% a year. 100,000, they're saving 30,000 in 12 months. There's nothing to spend your money on. And by the way, you still only have 4,000 in your, your retirement account. So you have 27,000 suddenly, and people looked around and said, I can afford the down payment. Suddenly, they weren't willing to change their lifestyle to afford it, but when their lifestyle got changed for them, they could afford down payments. That's what took off home ownership. The second thing that happened is somebody had their beloved grandmother die seven years before she was scheduled by natural means to die, right? What did that mean? Grandmother left her inheritance of 300,000. We're not talking huge money. She left her home, her home got liquidated, a bit of a retirement account, 300,000. We're not talking about rich people, right? We're just talking about a, a 75, 85-year-old who had 300,000. 300,000 meant that the two children and four grandchildren got 50,000 each inheritance eight years sooner than they thought they were going to get it. And it was happening because all of those people are dying of COVID. Flood of a money available for down payments. Just unprecedented flood. What happened to home ownership? An unprecedented flood in the ability to come up with down payment and home ownership. Now, those are gonna normalize as death rates normalize and you go back to spending your normal pattern. You're going to the ball game again. You're going to restaurants again. You're going on vacations. Yes, they may be domestic rather than foreign, but you're, you know. So the down payment ability is going to normalize over the next couple of years. It's going to hang on a bit because the early inheritance part has legs, right? There's still people getting those inheritance from people who died six months ago and so forth. So I, but I think housing does well. Multifamily does well. Why does multifamily does well, do well? We fundamentally have underproduced both single family and multifamily to a combined total of about four and a half percent of the stock of housing over the last twenty years. So we fundamentally underproduce. So if you fundamentally underproduce and you continue to grow, is it a surprise? Prices go up, rents go up. People say, can single family and multifamily do well at the same time? Of course. Can Volkswagen and Toyota do well at the same time? Almost all the time. <laughs> can Ford and General Motors do well at the same time? 
almost all the time. Doesn't mean they do equally well, but it's the overarching supply-demand fundamentals and the fact that we have fundamentally underproduced housing over the last 20 years and we continue to grow means both will do well moving forward. Now, there'll be little pockets, right, uh, that won't do as well. There'll be little pockets that do better. Yeah, you've called it the golden age of multifamily investing. And I would imagine that's one of the reasons why, obviously, as well as, you know, your your supply and demand metrics and, and sort of your migration patterns, your renters by necessity, your renters by choice, your migration across different markets and so forth. But Peter, this is such an insightful conversation. Is there anything that you would add to that before we transition into our rapid fire section? No, no, I think you've got it. I mean, It's a golden age for the supply and demand reasons, Um, not necessarily for the renter, not necessarily for the buyer, but for the owner and the landlord. Right, right. It's a golden age. And and then you add to it, debt is cheap, it's and plentiful and more is coming. I think that's why it's a golden age. No, I... That's all I would add. That's awesome. Well, Peter, this is an insightful conversation. Very, very insightful. In fact, I'd love to ask you a few questions for the rare air questionnaire. It's all about really thinking in these ways and building the lattice work of understanding in terms of economics and making decisions based on all of this in terms of maximizing your opportunities and so that you can really live a big life, right? Because business, real estate, everything is a vehicle. So I'd love to ask you just a few questions before we wrap today. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why, Peter? Um, Probably off the top of my head, Matt Ridley's um, Rational Optimist. Um, uh, It it points out that we constantly keep saying things are getting worse, even though the world generally gets better. We're in a little moment where it actually has gotten worse. That would certainly be one. Um, I read the autobiography of Ben Franklin's autobiography, which was kind of the largest selling book at its time. I live about four blocks from where Ben Franklin, we're sitting about four blocks from where Ben Franklin lived. Um, My favorite person in history, by the way. (laughs) Well, and it's fascinating because many of the dilemmas of divisive politics and it's history is history. You know, it is, we think we're experiencing something no one has ever experienced. And in fact, um, I think it was while Washington was president. So I want, while Washington was president in the area I live was the great yellow fever pandemic Mm. and was even worse relative to the population than what we're dealing with. Small, smaller population. Right. But um, so those two certainly come to mind um, yeah, I'd say those two. I, it's hard for me to come up. I, the challenge I have is I speak German, and so and I have effectively German grandchildren, and they're little, so they don't speak English. And to stay in practice, I read crime novels and <laughs> light stuff in German to keep my vocabulary up. And none of them were particularly great books, but they helped my vocabulary. But those two, I would say, if you haven't read Matt Ridley's book, it's absolutely. Oh, I I tell you the other. I read um, Unsettled um, by Stephen Coonan, who's a physicist at NYU and uh, was an Obama administration scientist at the Energy Department. 
and he goes through the IPCC reports with care and shows that if you actually read what the IPCC says, you can find no link between global warming and um, extreme weather events. Uh, even though the media constantly reports it, you just can't find it. And that's a good book to read too, Unsettled by Stephen Coonan. That's awesome. We'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find those books. And in addition to that, speaking of reading, where you can find the Lineman Letter as well as Peter's book. And Peter, I know I wanted to just mention this real quickly before we wrap today. You're working on something new right now, which is really exciting and dynamic. So could you talk a little bit about your new book, uh, The yeah, Great Age yeah, Reboot? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I got a call from a very good friend, Albert Ratner, um, who, among other things, was on the board at Cleveland Clinic, a major medical place. And he said he was working on a book about all these whiz-bang science, genetic engineering stuff that you, some of you might even look at as a headline, but you don't really pay attention to. And... Uh, and they need somebody who can help them on the economics of it because the first thing they do when they tell any friend that people are going to live longer because of these whiz bangs, they say, no, 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 we don't want to live longer. We can't afford it. So my, we all worked on the book together. Mike Royzen of Cleveland Clinic is the lead author on the science and the medicine, although I read more genetic stuff than I ever thought I would in my life. And it was very broadening and fun. And what it basically says is we're looking at an explosion in healthy, um, invigorated lifespans. And just I'll give you, you know, they've, re they've turned uh, mature dogs to have the vibrance and lifespan of a puppy, but it has its brain. So it still is toilet trained, you know, just yeah. to you know, get and. They've done this with several, they've done this in several places. They've turned white fat, just think of bacon, right? When I say white fat, we have white fat mostly, um, which burns very slowly because over um, evolution, our problem was we've got to store uh, energy so we can burn it when we can't find food. And so white fat burns very slowly. But we've gotten where getting food is not generally our problem in the Western world, right? So we have all this white fat that burns very slowly and creates all kinds of health problems. But babies have brown fat. It looks brown and it burns very fast. It keeps them warm. They have with CRISPR basically turned white fat into brown fat. Now, think of what that does is that if you can genetically engineer um, people to burn their fat faster. That means they don't have the problems of obesity, hypertension that come from it, diabetes that come from it. And the reason that's important is not only are they healthier, not only will they live longer. And by the way, these are just a couple out of thousands of right. these things that happen. 80%. We spend about 18% of GDP in the United States on medical care. Of that, we spend about 14% of GDP on lifestyle diseases, diabetes, uh, obesity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If these genetic breakthroughs could just cut that in half, 
We go from 14% of GDP. Just think if we did the, the white fat one. And so we no longer have hypertension and we no longer have, and we, we move better in our joints and we do. Our medical outlays would fall by 7%, 8% of GDP. Wow, what a windfall to do whatever we want to do, right? And if you got 7% of GDP back because we're healthier and we live longer, we'll work longer, we'll be productive longer. And by the way, we can pay longer retirement periods because I have 7% of GDP back. Right. Uh, I'm not. And so when you start playing all this through, not to mention grandma's still alive, you know, and grandma's really healthy. And so when I was born, my life expectancy was 68. I'm 70. I'm healthy. Um, you look phenomenal. Three quarters of the people born the year I'm born are still alive. And it gives you a sense of what's already happened. This genetic stuff could just make it beyond belief. However, you got to stay alive and healthy till the cavalry comes. That's an old kind of, I'm showing my age of watching the old cowboy movies, right? <laughs> you got to wait until the help comes. Because if you don't maintain your health yourself, if you don't genetically engineer yourself by diet and exercise and so forth, not smoking, whatever it is, you could die before those many opportunities come. And so you've got to, we say, genetically engineer yourself. And you do control about 80% of your DNA settings. Only about 20% of them are, quote, at least under current science locked in. 80% of your DNA settings you set by, are you exercising? Are you eating? Are you this? Are you under stress, et cetera? All relating to evolution in some way. So the book is one, two, three. You're going to live longer because some of these whiz-bang things are going to happen. We don't know which, and we don't know exactly when. Two, you got to take care of yourself until they do so you can benefit from them. And three, of course, we can afford people getting older. You're not going to live 20 more years of the worst year of your life. You're going to live like uh, another year or two in your 20s, another year or two in your 30s, another year or two in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Your last year will still probably be miserable, right? <laughs> I mean, we haven't solved that one yet, but it'll be 20 years later or 30 years later. And in between, you had this amazing extra vibrancy in life from all these things. That's the spirit. And I'll just to give one personal point. So I've had a detached retina when I was 53. I've had both hip replaced in the last 11 years. Um, if you go back to when I was born, somebody with the same maladies would be blind in one eye and would have been crippled for the last 12 years. And if you get crippled, that's going to have all. We've already made amazing breakthroughs. Now imagine you start doing those genetically rather than with scalpels. Uh, a lot less collateral damage and so forth. So that's the spirit. And it's been an exciting and fun thing because it took me to areas I didn't know. That was fun. That's very exciting. And it Coming just out, it's called the Great Age Reboot. Um, Mike Roizen, uh, Albert Ratner, myself, Mike's the lead author, and uh, it's National Geographic as the publisher will come out, I think, in January. 
Very exciting. Can't wait to read it. And I just think that, you know, all of these developments are exciting for all of us, but it just illustrates that we can all be dynamic. We can all be multidimensional. We don't have to just be an economist or, you know, uh, you know, an epidemiologist or a real estate investor and all these things. We can learn new things and we can apply it for the greater good. Peter, two more quick questions for you before we wrap today. What's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? Two ways. They're tied. One is um, um, I'm an inveterate exerciser all my life, which I think not only helps me physically in this genetic engineering sense we were talking about, it burns off a lot of stress. It burns off. So I basically do uh, 80 minutes on a stationary bike, reasonably hard. Um, and I lift weights an hour. I try to do each morning very early. I get up at about five and I do that. And then I go for about a 10 mile walk while doing my business calls and my emails and so forth. And um, that's very uplifting. I don't know what else to say. It's very uh, helpful. And I think it keeps me healthy and reasonably strong. And my goal, I do realize I'm going to die and my goal is that when I'm laying on the sidewalk dead, a couple of women walking by say he's in tremendous shape for a dead guy. That's all I'm <laughs> That's my goal. So that's one. And the other is um, I mentioned we have a, we have no children by blood, but we have like daughters. Um, and every day I try to talk with one of them. They're grown up, right? They're your age. They have. 12 children between them, 11 boys. And I try to touch base with them, talk with them at least a little each day, uh, one or more of them each day. And I find that uplifting. And I think it hopefully uplifts them a little, especially during these kind of times. And then we have 140 children that we, my wife and I, have a charity called Save a Mind, Sam Ilimu, which is Education and Swahili. And we have 140 children of destitute poverty and orphans that we provide their lives, their food, their clothes, their education. And so um, every morning I'll have eight to 15 WhatsApps from those kids. And they're mostly, are you awake? Uh, what are you doing today? You know, they're nothings. And I will send back a little short. I find that uplifting for me and I hope it uplifts them. That's awesome. I would imagine that's one big way that you elevate others around you through your foundation. But is there anything else that you would point to as my last and final question? The biggest way that you elevate others around you, Peter? Remind them. I, I would say I try to remind them that, and I mean this seriously, um, love and forgiveness is much more powerful than hatred and I'm getting even. And we live in a time where far too many people um, seem to think the answer is getting even or hatred or jealousy. And I just haven't seen over my life that much positives have ever come out of those emotions. I understand those emotions. There are times I don't claim I always live what I'm saying. I try. I really do try. Um, and in fact, on any kind of personal correspondence, not my business correspondence, any kind of personal correspondence, I always end it with, for, for 25 years, I'll end it with capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E, which is as much a reminder to me 
as it is a message to whoever I'm sending it to. And I really believe that. Um, so I do try to remind myself and others that, uh, yeah, I mean, love doesn't conquer everything and forgiveness doesn't conquer, conquer everything, but it conquers a lot. And hatred conquers basically nothing. And revenge or get even basically conquers. Not, I just haven't seen in my life. Maybe it does good, but I just haven't seen it in my life. Peter, what a beautiful way to wrap this conversation. I have absolutely loved it myself. I've loved to learn alongside you and learn from you and learn in this conversation. But Peter Lineman, ladies and gentlemen, what a phenomenal conversation. You can learn more about Peter and Lineman Associates at LinemanAssociates.com. Of course, we'll put a link in the show notes as to where you can find that. But Peter, where else can the listeners find you and learn more about what you do? Well, there's a if you Google, you'll find a lot of stuff we have uh, with Bill Ferguson and I. Um, we have a program called Masterminds where we've been doing what you do, but we've been doing it with like John Gray of Blackstone for half an hour. On lead- it's all on leadership and um, uh, it's all on leadership and strategy. And so we've Sam Zell and so forth. And people might find those interesting. You can find them on YouTube if you kind of do Masterminds John Gray or Mastermind Bill Ferguson or you know, something like that, you'll find. Um, other than that, um, yeah, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> no doubt about it, my friend. Well, Peter, thank you again for being on the show. Really, really appreciate you being on the show. Look forward to part two because, man, there's a lot of ground that I still want to cover with you. A lot of that beautiful mind that I still want to explore. So, Peter, thanks again for being on the show, my friend. Thank you for having me. Elevate Nation. What a phenomenal conversation with Peter Lineman, one of the really most world-renowned economists uh, in our modern times. Super excited about that conversation and also very, very insightful. I learned so much. I hope that you did as well. I want to encourage you to re-listen to this show because there's so much wisdom that Peter shared with us today that you can apply to the way that you're making decisions in your real estate business and as a consumer and just as a market participant in so many different ways as a dynamic investor, as a dynamic human being. There's a lot of the integration of the character traits that you can take from this conversation with Peter Lineman. So I want to encourage you to re-listen to this show and share this with someone that you know, whether it's a friend, family, business associate, partner, a spouse, you name it, share this episode with someone that you want to understand more about what's going on in our economy, what to anticipate about what is potentially next. And of course, the most important part of all of this is to take what you learned and apply. What are the top one, two, or three key distinctions that you took away from this episode? Write those down, whether it's in your phone notes, whether it's on a journal, an agenda, you know, a piece of scrap paper, write down your number one, two, or three top distinctions, share those with someone else. And of course, apply those immediately, take massive action. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.